Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. For the last eight weeks, we've studied the covenants that God made with mankind. God has always had room in his heart for people. In fact, God created us out of a desire to have meaningful fellowship with us. Every time throughout history, people have rebelled against God's authority. He's been there with a covenant, with an agreement to mend the breach, to make amends for the sin, to bend sinful hearts back to him. God is love, and yet God is more than love. For he also cares about justice and righteousness and purity and fidelity and retribution and even judgment. And to satisfy these other concerns along with love, God offers a covenant. Well, following the global flood, God called on the survivors to scatter and multiply. But instead, the family of man sinned again. The people gathered in the city of Babylon under the influence of a man named Nimrod. In defiance to God, they built a tower to the heavens. But God struck down their monument to hubris. And he confused the languages, driving men apart. Since they refused to scatter on their own, God did it for them. The rebellion of Babel was a work of Satan. For the devil had chosen a man named Nimrod. A place called Babel and a means which was fear. But God counterpunched. By choosing a man named Abram, a place called Canaan, in a means known as faith. God had tired of working with mankind as a whole, to no avail. He now makes a covenant with a specific family through which he plans to bring salvation to the whole world. And God makes three promises to this man, Abram. Three magnificent promises. Here's the shorthand version. Sod, seed, salvation. A piece of land to possess and occupy. A great nation of descendants. And a blessing upon the world. God promises through Abram's descendant, salvation will come to all mankind. On the one hand, God's strategy was brilliant. In choosing Israel as his special people, God wasn't abandoning the rest of humanity. At times in their history, God dealt harshly with Israel's enemies. But it was the judgment their own sin deserved. Or it was the result of a callousness they had shown toward God's people. Ultimately, though, God preferred Israel for the benefit of the whole world. They were a revelation of God's ways and will. See, God's plans for Israel were unique. His blueprints for the Hebrews didn't completely apply to other nations, but through God's dealings with Israel, he revealed his character and his values, even his morals and ethics. The Hebrew people and their scripture 
became the lens through which the rest of the world could see and learn about the one true God. This is why Christians today are obligated to study the Hebrew Bible, what has come to be known as the Old Testament. On the one hand, God's plan to pick out a people for himself was brilliant. But on the other hand, it was risky. What if the Hebrew people were wiped out by their enemies? What would become of God's plans? Or what if they imploded from within? What if they fraternized with their pagan neighbors and were assimilated culturally or racially or spiritually, so much so that they could disappear as a distinct ethnic group? And this was especially true in their beginning stages before becoming a larger nation. In Canaan, Abraham's tiny little family was surrounded by vile and corrupt and immoral cultures whose people were violent idolaters. Well, God established two safeguards to protect Israel from this kind of assimilation. First was Egypt. In Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. For the next four centuries, God will protect his people Israel from their evil Canaanite neighbors by sequestering them in Egypt. And then in the fourth generation, they'll emerge from slavery as God's instrument of judgment. You see, unlike the Canaanites and the Amorites who like to mingle socially, the Egyptians were strict separatists. The Egyptians felt racially superior. They believed that they had descended from the gods. They were certain to keep segregated from the Israelites among them. Eventually, Egypt took the Hebrews into slavery. This was actually a blessing in disguise. Though painful in many ways, it ensured the purity of the promised seed. But the second safeguard that God established to preserve the unique identity of his people Israel was the law. In his own time, God heard and answered the prayers of the slaves in Egypt. He sent the Hebrews a deliverer named Moses. And no sooner had Moses brought God's people through the Red Sea, he led them to the mountain where he had first met with God. On Mount Sinai, God gave Moses and Israel his divine law. The traditional site of Mount Sinai is an outcropping of rock that rises 1,100 feet above its surroundings. It looks like a giant pulpit sitting in the desert. And that was fitting, for it was there from that mountain that God taught the people his will and his ways. For the next year, in fact, Israel camped at the base of God's pulpit. Their obedience and their loyalty to the law of God would distinguish the children of Abraham as God's people. Israel's destiny was to return to the land that God had promised them, to be a holy nation, 
in an unholy world. And it was from Mount Sinai that the Lord said to Moses, our text tonight, Exodus 34, write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. God's covenant was with Abraham's heirs, not with other nations, and certainly not with the later spiritual people of God, the church. It was with the Hebrews. And it wasn't a covenant defined merely by words. Yahweh said specifically, according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Not just these words, but God was making a covenant according to the tenor of these words. This Hebrew word that gets translated tenor, it means the puff or the air or the essence behind the words. The tenor of a word or a phrase is its original meaning, its intent. God was making a covenant with his people, not according to the words alone, but his covenant was based on the intent behind the words. Here's Exodus 34, verse 27 in the Amplified Bible. It makes it quite interesting. Write these words, for after the purpose and character of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And this needs to be our guide when we interpret Scripture. Our pursuit is to grasp not just the words per se, but the purpose and the character of these words. You see, every biblical text has a context. The circumstances and folks involved, the various covenants at play, all contribute to how it should be understood. The key to discerning the intent of any passage is noting its proper content text. Remember what matters in a contract are the words, the legalese. It's all about exact wording. Whereas what matters in a covenant is the commitment that those words express. It involves the purpose behind the words. Recently I watched a documentary on the personal residence of the United States president, of course the White House. But the commentator said something that was very interesting. He observed... The White House is the most public of any private residence in America. And it's the most private of any public building in America. Isn't that interesting? And in a sense, the same can be said for the Mosaic Law. It is the most universal of any national code of law. Yet it's the most personally specific of any universal truth. It's a document meant for the Hebrews, yet it applies to all mankind. And though it's indispensable to man, it can't really be understood apart from Hebrew culture. Think about it this way. Biblical Israel, who lived the Old Testament, was a theocratic monarchy operating in an agrarian culture during a period of antiquity. That meant Hebrews lived under a dynasty of human kings and under a religious law decreed by God. Predominantly farmers who lived off the land, they lived in a pre-industrial period of world history. Now in contrast, we Americans who read the Old Testament, 
We live in a secular democracy, operating in a capitalistic culture at a time of high-tech ingenuity. That means we live under a government chosen by the people and are governed by man-made laws. We work in commercial enterprise fueled by advanced technology. For ancient Hebrews and modern Americans, our environment and our context couldn't be more diverse. Here's a classic passage where context becomes vital. Three times in the law of Moses, it instructs, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. We read that and think, what's the big deal? In fact, later Jews turned it into a huge deal. This became the basis for an intricate set of kosher or dietary rules separating milk and meat products. Yet that also took the passage out of context. Remember, the law protected God's people in an idolatrous, hedonistic culture. Boiling a goat in his mother's milk was tied to a Canaanite fertility ritual that God didn't want his people Israel to participate in. Today, a person might read that passage literally and think, okay, I'm obeying God. I've never boiled a goat, let alone in its mother's milk. But the literal words of the text have very little to do any longer with its intent. What the passage actually means to us is not to make a God out of sex or out of pleasure. Don't be part of the hedonistic culture around us. You see, the correct interpretation depends on context. Another feature of the law that alters its context has to do with its complexity. God gave Moses different types of laws, moral laws, established God's standard for behavior and sexuality. Civil laws governed life and society as it related to the land of Canaan. And ceremonial laws were given by God to foreshadow the coming, the coming Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Through the moral laws, we see how God wants us to treat each other and express our sexuality. These laws haven't changed throughout the centuries. Many of these laws are repeated in the New Testament. Through civil laws, God gave governance over the life of the Hebrews as they lived in the land of Canaan. Many of these laws are irrelevant today to modern culture. And through the ceremonial laws, God established how he wanted to be worshipped. It all ultimately pointed to Jesus. These laws are still vital symbolically. So, I read a moral law, and I note that if it was God's desire for people then, then surely it's his desire for folks today. I read a civil law about helping my neighbor get his ox out of a ditch. And though my neighbors don't own any oxen, the intent of the law might also apply to me giving my neighbor a ride if his car breaks down. And then I read a ceremonial law that speaks of sacrificing a lamb. And I realize that Jesus has become my spotless lamb. And I look for a way in that law to better appreciate the work of Jesus, all that he has accomplished for me. See, there's meaning for us in the law of Moses. 
as long as we pay attention to the passage's proper context. And as Christians, another aspect of all this that alters our context is that we are now living under a different covenant. Jesus came to fulfill the demands of the law. He lived up to its standard of righteousness. Then he laid down his perfect life as the ultimate sacrifice. Now for the believer in Jesus, the law's moral requirements have been satisfied by the purity of Christ. The civil requirements have been satisfied by the love of Christ. And now its ceremonial requirements have been satisfied by the cross of Christ. And this is how, according to the law, Christians are now blameless in Christ. Though I'm no longer required to keep the law, I can study it and I can learn of God's character through it. I can see what love for God and love for my brother looks like. And I can gain a greater appreciation of his sacrifice. Yet today, modern skeptics and atheists, they love to read the Old Testament and take passages out of context. They love to cherry pick the Hebrew scriptures and find literal words and thoughts that are problematic in light of modern values. They claim contradiction or hypocrisy. Their problem, though, is that they approach the Old Testament unfairly out of context. They lack an informed New Testament perspective for understanding the old. For example, several years ago, there was a letter that appeared on the internet. It was addressed to Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Perhaps you've heard Dr. Laura's call-in advice show on the radio. She was on WSB here in Atlanta for many years. Dr. Laura, Laura is Jewish. And she had taken a strong stance against homosexuality. Well, the internet letter was intended to show how archaic and outdated the Bible is and thus how wrong it is in its teachings on homosexuality. In fact, television writer Aaron Sorkin played off this internet letter to Dr. Laura in an episode of his hit series, The West Wing. He had his fictional president, Jed Bartlett, take a female radio personality, Jenna Jacobs, to task. In the clip I'm about to show you, the president uses his clever wit to embarrass this woman and cast doubt on the reliability of the Old Testament. Here's an excerpt from the episode, The Midterms. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? 
Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? <laughs> that was the TV show. But it was prompted by this internet letter. I want to take you back to the satirical letter that prompted the, sh the show and work through its 11 points. I think you'll see that it's all about context. The letter opens sarcastically. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for educating people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from your show, and I try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend a homosexual lifestyle, for example, I remind him that Leviticus 18.22 declares it to be an abomination. End of debate. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some of the specific laws and how to best follow them. And here's where he tries to embarrass the Bible. Number one, when I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord. Leviticus 1 verse 9. The problem is my neighbor's. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? Well, first of all, you know that the skeptic writing here was obviously not a southerner. For no southerner complains about the smell of barbecue beef, especially on Memorial Day. Actually, this is the easiest of these points to answer. The Old Testament sacrifices all foreshadowed Jesus. Thus, when Jesus died on the cross once and for all for the sins of the world, there was no longer a need for a sacrifice. Our skeptic here should shut down his sacrificial altar, for the odor is no longer needed or pleasing to God. He should leave his barbecuing to Mark Lawson and the boys at Calvary Chapel. Well, here's a second question that this author writes. Number two. I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21 verse 7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for? And of course, this takes off on the Bartlett clip. Once again, when we see the word slavery, context takes over. Americans think of slavery very differently than Hebrews did. Americans think of slavery based on racial prejudice or sexual exploitation. Whereas slavery in ancient Israel had nothing to do with either. The ancient Hebrews had no bankruptcy. And so slavery became a means to escape economic desperation. In the passage quoted Exodus 21 to ensure that his daughter would be fed and clothed and sheltered. A father in the poorhouse might sell his daughter to a man who wanted her to be his wife. Read Exodus 21 verse 7 and it's clear the man's purpose in buying the daughter is to marry or betroth her. The law protected her against mistreatment. God's law never sanctioned slavery. It only conceded it existed and sought to bring reform. In fact, it's the Bible's teaching that man was made in God's image that we all have the same standing at the foot of the cross, that in Christ we're brothers. These truths eventually led to the belief that all men are created equal, which led to the condemnation of all slavery by future generations. 
The love of Christ is the only power proven strong enough to break the chains of hatred and bigotry that cause slavery even to this day. Well, third, the third question in this letter, I know that I am allowed no contact with a woman while she is in her period of menstrual uncleanliness. Leviticus 15, verses 19 to 24. The problem is, how do I tell? I've tried asking, but most women take offense. Obviously, the writer of this letter is mocking a principle that was important to Hebrews at the time. Remember, it's all about context when we understand the Bible. Remember, when Israel left Mount Sinai, they were headed for a pagan hot spot. Canaan was full of tribes that were lewd and immoral. All kinds of perverse acts were done in the name of their fertility gods. Occult practices were commonplace. The Canaanites merged religion and sex, and God wanted his people to be different. This is why for both men and women, any bodily emission, either semen or menstrual bleeding, caused the person to be unclean and thus unfit for a time for worship. It wasn't that God disapproved of marital intimacy or there was anything sinful about it. He just didn't want sex formalized into Hebrew worship as it had been in the worship of false gods. See, the pagans believed that these emissions prompted the gods to water the earth with rain. God wanted his people to have no part in these perverse superstitions. And God also wanted his people to have an ethos of sexual restraint. Pagan culture lived by the motto, anything goes. God didn't want his people adopting that same lifestyle. Thus, a person's sexual life was interrupted at times by certain conditions that deserved his respect. And while we're on the subject of religion and sex, though it's not mentioned in this letter, many skeptics ask, why did God order Israel to carry out genocide against the Canaanites, even their women and children. Well, recall what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15. He was preparing Israel to be a tool of judgment to use against the Amorites once their, and I quote, their iniquity is complete. These Canaanite tribes had flirted with demons. Their worship had blended sex with demonic activity. It harkened back to the pre-flood perversions where demons polluted the human race. God wouldn't let it happen again. We'd been there, done that, and got the t-shirt. Once the evil of the Amorites passed the point of no return, God wiped them out. He had no choice to protect the world from diving into the same perversions all over again. He told the Israelite army to kill them all. Well, there's another question in this letter, number four. Leviticus 25, 44 states that I may indeed possess slaves, slavery again, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighboring nations. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans but not Canadians. Can you clarify why can't I own Canadians? Realize God's plan to promote Israel. He made the Hebrews his own special people. He chose to work through them to reveal his heart to the world. 
This meant the only way that a citizen of a neighboring nation could find or learn about the one true God was to become part of Israel. And here was one of the ways that could occur as a prisoner of war or as a man who was in debt to a Hebrew. He could sell himself into slavery. He could join the Israeli community. Again, much like divorce, this was never God's ideal. It was a concession to life in a fallen world. The law regulated slavery, and it gave it benevolent parameters. In fact, Leviticus 25 is an amazing chapter. For in it, God orders two occasions when all Hebrew owners are commanded to free their slaves. Emancipation Day occurred every seventh year or every Sabbath year and every 50th year, which was the year of Jubilee. There's no other example of a nation of antiquity ever freeing slaves, let alone every seventh year. That meant Israel had no slaves in perpetuity. They were freed every seven years. And then number five in this letter, the fifth question, I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35 verse 2 clearly states that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to killing myself? Again, this is intended to think of the Bible as silly. That couldn't be further from the truth. At the dawning of Israel's national life, God did impose severe penalties to hammer home the importance of certain laws that might otherwise have seemed insignificant. And the Sabbath was a law that the Hebrews might have had a very difficult time taking seriously. Why? Well, think of people in antiquity. These people, they battled the elements to carve out a living. They tilled the ground. They labored by the sweat of their brow. They worked despite nature's uncertainties and fought pestilence and drought and floods. Hey, even seven days for these primitive people wasn't enough time to do all that life demanded. To hear from God that I'm supposed to work every seventh day might have been a pill too tough to stomach. Yet the fourth commandment stated, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Moses was told as God spent six days creating the earth, six days would be given to man for work. But as God rested on the seventh, he wanted his people to do the same. Again, this was revolutionary in the ancient world. Neighboring nations spent every hour of every day grinding it out. They needed all seven days to provide for their family. But God wanted his people to be an example of his loving care. He asked Israel to trust him enough to let him provide for them one day in seven. After a day of rest and family, they could return to their work happier and holier with a renewed vision of why they went to work in the first place. Without a day of rest, mankind would work himself to death Thus, the penalty God imposed on Israel for breaking the Sabbath day was death. God's Sabbath stipulations weren't a petty God's attempts to manipulate his people's schedule or make them go to temple. 
To the contrary, he wanted to enhance their enjoyment of life and see them rested. As Jesus said in Mark 2 verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. A day of rest was intended as a gift to God's people, not a burden. As for Christians, though we too are exempt, or though we're not exempt from needing a day of rest, we do need one. As with the sacrifices, the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. He is our rest. He's our Sabbath, the book of Hebrews tells us. Jesus provides his people a lifetime now of grace and rest from all their labors. He gives us a perfect peace. And as with the Old Testament Sabbath, if you reject his spiritual Sabbath, the punishment again is death. Well, number six on this list. A friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, Leviticus 11 verse 10 It is a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this? Well, there were Hebrew laws that dealt with diet, no doubt. Certain foods were considered clean and others unclean. Shellfish, shrimp and crabs and lobster and the like, these were considered unclean or off limits to Hebrews. There were foods that were considered holy and others were considered unholy. Of course, in the New Testament, on a rooftop in Joppa, in Acts chapter 10, in a vision to Peter, God declared foods that were once considered unclean to now be clean. The point being that the designations of clean and unclean are not always based on nutritional value. Sometimes they were arbitrary. See, God just wanted to drill into his people that there are categories in life, like holy and unholy. And this is part of a master plan, an overarching lesson that God wanted ingrained in his people's thinking. That life is about choices. There is a clean and there is an unclean. There's a holy and there's an unholy. There's God's way and there's man's way. And every time you cooked, you were reminded. See, God wanted his people to know that in a world that's increasingly gray, some things are still black and white, right and wrong. And God desired a holy people. And this was also true when it came to sexual preferences. There was God's natural use of sexual functions. And then there were twisted or distorted uses, many of which came with harmful consequences. Remember, pagan sexuality had no taboos, certainly not homosexuality. Yet God wanted his people to know there's still holy relationships and unholy relationships. And it was as true for God to call the eating of a shellfish distasteful as it would be for him to refer to a homosexual lifestyle by the same term, an abomination. Well, there's a seventh question here. Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or 
Or is there some wiggle room here? (laughs) Once again, context is king when it comes to our understanding of God's intent behind his laws. In our informal, laid-back American culture, one of the things that we no longer appreciate, as we should, are symbols. Well, actually, we can't escape them. Even in our culture, symbols are all around us. From the Nike swoosh, to the Apple logo, to the American flag, our world is defined and shaped by symbols. And no one is more into symbols than God. Just think of the two symbols he's left us. Baptism and communion. They speak volumes. And so it was with who could approach God's altar. A person with a a handicap, a physical deformity or defect was disqualified. Not because of a prejudice or due to a cruelty, but because of the symbolic meaning that God wanted to convey. To approach his altar You had to be perfect or unblemished, at least to the naked eye. This was important because it set the stage for our need for Jesus. The New Testament says that spiritually speaking, in God's eyes, we've all sinned and come short of God's glory. We're all spiritually blemished, tarnished, and thus none of us are allowed to come to his altar. That's why we need Jesus. Only Jesus can atone for our sin. He's our perfect high priest. The intent behind Leviticus 21 verse 20 isn't to discriminate against physically impaired people. It's to help us all appreciate Jesus. And then verse 8. Not verse 8, but number 8 in this crazy letter. Most of my male friends get their hair trimmed, including the hair around their temples even though this is expressly forbidden by Leviticus 19.27. How should they die? Now again, this was a pagan practice. It was part of a Canaanite's dedication to his idol. He would shave the edges of his hair or his beard. And it would be blasphemous against God for an Israelite to follow suit. It would be rejecting the one true God for the worthless idols of the Canaanites. God wanted his people to have no part of this. As a matter of fact, even to this day, here's why an Orthodox Jew lets the edges of his beard and hair grow and go unshaved. As a side note, Leviticus 19 doesn't say the friends who trim their hair should die. The punishment isn't mentioned. But recall Israel was an earthly kingdom under God's governance, with religious laws. It wasn't America. We're a secular democracy with freedom of religion. Everyone today answers to God eventually. But understand, the Hebrews answered to God immediately. In a theocratic kingdom, every law was God's law. Today, Christians live in a spiritual kingdom, scattered among many earthly kingdoms. We all have different forms of government and diverse customs and laws. In secular, human-run societies, not always do God's concerns track with the government's concerns. Today, the blessings God promises us are spiritual, not physical. The kingdom He's building involves individuals, not institutions. 
Our ruler is God's spirit, not some president. And our day of reckoning is future, not immediate. This was all very different for Old Testament Israel. And then there's a ninth question in this letter to Dr. Laura. It says, and this is the one that perhaps is most fun, uh, the one that the President Bartlett said in the video clip, I know from Leviticus 11 verses 6 through 8 that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean, but may I still play football if I wear gloves? First of all, despite all the folklore, a football isn't made from pig skin, it's from cowhide and always has been. Here the skeptic doesn't even get his facts straight. But this goes back to the clean and unclean distinctions. Thankfully, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus changes us from the inside out so that to the pure, all things become pure. For the Christian, clean and unclean is now about attitude, not the leather we touch. And then question 10. My uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19.19 by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, a cotton-polyester blend. The mixing of things confuses many people. Leviticus 19 mentions the breeding of different livestock or the sowing of various seeds in the same field or the wearing of clothes of mixed fabrics. This was forbidden by God's people. And here's why. The Canaanites viewed this mixing of different brands of the same item as a source of magical power. And again, God didn't want his people participating in practices that were associated with evil. He didn't want them to be guilty of guilt by association. The Israelites were to avoid the appearance of evil. And who knows what other ways a 13th century B.C. agrarian society benefited from these avoidances. Mixing livestock can yield genetically inferior offspring. Again, it's all about context. Are we arrogant enough to look on laws intended for another people at another time and circumstance and label them useless? How do we know? You and I are no longer subject to a law with ancient implications, but even for us, as with all the law, this commandment may also have some symbolic inspiration. Often mixing stuff has some detrimental effects on us, doesn't it? Just as mixing certain breeds of livestock may yield inferior animals, mixing different personalities sometimes can make for a combustible combination. Or mixing truth and error, or mixing grace and works, or mixing a believer and an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6 makes much of that. The law, this law, may be a symbolic foreboding. Be careful what you mix. By the way, you know what you get when you mix Lassie with a pit bull? A dog that mauls you, then runs to get help. <laughs> and then finally the 11th question on this list my uncle also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot 
Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them? Leviticus 24, 10 through 16. Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws? Leviticus 20, verse 14. President Bartlett kind of mixes this up in his stick. You know, I suppose the modern shock over these passages stem from the harshness of these punishments. You remember, Israel was a theocratic society held together by divine law. Nothing was gained for God to be apathetic or vague about what he desired. In ancient times, a person's name was their most sacred and valuable possession. God was the thread of the nation's national life. To insist on honoring his name was not only appropriate, it was essential for social order. God couldn't have made respect for his name a bigger deal. And morally, what could be worse than the situation described in Leviticus 20 verse 14, a man marrying a woman and her mother? We're talking about a man marrying his mother-in-law. What kind of a sicko does that? Lord, help me to refrain from the jokes I might be tempted to tell at this moment and just say that's a really bad idea, marrying your mother-in-law. Leviticus 20 verse 14 commands that all three perpetrators should be burned with fire. One Bible commentary I read interpreted that phrase, branded with a hot iron. All parties had to bear the stigma of their sin the rest of their life. When it comes to marrying your mother-in-law, execution would have been getting off too easy. This passage in Leviticus 20 assigns capital punishment to a number of sexual sins people today might be inclined to tolerate. An incorrigible child, adultery, incest, bestiality, homosexuality. But understand... These were all crimes against society's basic building block, the family. God punished these sins severely to protect his designs on family life, the incubator for society. Again, after God lists these sins and assigns their punishments, he makes this comment, And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you. For they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. God looked at the pagan nations and saw them mired in spiritual and social decay. Israel was his hope. He designed for them to be different. And it was his law that separated them and made them special. Of course, punishment is not God's only way of preserving his values in a society. Today, he prefers the gospel. The New Testament teaches us that the goodness of God is what leads a man to repentance. We live in light of a new covenant where God changes men from the inside out. God's Holy Spirit operates today in a way He didn't in times past. Jesus died on the cross for sinners, for adulterers, for homosexuals, for incorrigible kids, etc., etc. 
Then he rose again to give them new life. Today, he wants us to die with him spiritually and rise with him in resurrection power. See, the law teaches us lessons. After reading it, there's no question as to God's attitude towards certain behaviors, but it's in Christ that we have hope. Even the most callous sinner isn't beyond the reach of God's grace. God's cure for our sin isn't our elimination, but our salvation. Let me close with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. It teaches us how to interpret the law of God in light of the grace of God. Paul writes, Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what was reiterated over and over in the law of Moses. But then Paul says, and such were some of you. Thankfully, there was more than the law. Christ came to bring new life. But you were washed and you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Today, God changes society and He creates for Himself a special people, the church, by changing men's hearts by the power of Jesus Christ.